Bible this morning. If you'll raise your hand, we'll bring you one. Anybody need a Bible? It'd be helpful for you to just to follow right through with us. Anybody? All right. Today I have with me a list entitled, The Top Ten Shortest Books. Here are the top ten shortest books. This list consists of some pretend titles now. Number ten, America's Most Popular Lawyers. Not much in that volume. Number nine, you're you're a little quick back there on the trigger. Number nine, Different Ways to Spell Bob. That's not a long read. Number eight, French Hospitality. Number seven, the 2018 Atlanta Hawks Basketball Highlights. Not much there. Number six, the Loganville Travel Guide. Another very short volume. Number five, everything men know about women. I mean, like, maybe like half a page. Number four, though, everything women know about men. You know, it's about the same on the other side. Number three, the engineer's guide to fashion. Another very short volume. Uh, Number two, the Amish phone directory. And then the number one shortest book, Pastor Sandy's jokes that are actually funny. These all would be very, very, very short books. And speaking of short books, we have two to study next. Second and third John are the shortest books in your Bible. Both books combined for a mere 27 verses, just 500 words. I call them the Lilliputian letters, after the little people in Gulliver's Travels. You could also call them the Fruit of the Loom letters, since they're both brief. Once there, was a, once there was a family, they were eating dinner together at a restaurant. During the meal, dad left for the restroom. Well, he was gone a long time. And finally, his wife wanted to know what was wrong with him. And so she sent her son in after him to find out if he was okay. Well, the boy walked into the restroom and he saw three stalls, but he couldn't see his dad. So he called out. He said, dad, are you all right? Where are you? That's when a voice sounded from the middle stall. Son, I'm okay. I'm in the second John. Which is where we are this morning. Second John. Let's read through our letter and then we'll go back through and look at it verse by verse. Second John, verse 1. The elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all those who have known the truth, because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth, as we have received commandment from the Father. And now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. 
This is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house, nor greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Having many things to write to you, I do not wish to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face that our joy may be full. The children of your elect sister greet you. Amen. John begins by introducing himself as the elder. These letters were perhaps the last New Testament books written. By the time they were penned, John was now 100 years old. He was the last living of the original 12 apostles. And John's stature was unsurpassed within the Christian community. He was known not just as an elder, he was known as the elder. John was an elder with a capital E. And he writes to the elect lady and her children. Some Bible teachers believe the elect lady was actually a sister church. In the New Testament, the church is referred to as the bride of Christ. And here it's possible but that the lady and her children are titles for a local body of believers. Or it could just refer to a specific person. Or some Bible teachers suggest that it's both. Perhaps John is writing to a devout Christian lady whose vibrant witness has birthed a church full of spiritual children. It could be that the church met in this lady's house. John writes to her and the church she planted. Notice John uses no personal names in this letter. Why? He was writing at a time of persecution, and he didn't want to give the enemies of Christianity ammunition to target anyone specifically. John is being a gentleman here. He's being protective of a female leader in the church. Did you hear about the McDonald's in Linwood, California? That on March 8th of this past year, they flipped their Golden Arches logo upside down. They displayed a W to celebrate International Women's Day. The Linwood McDonald's is owned by Patricia Williams. Patricia and her two daughters now own 18 McDonald's franchises. Apparently, McDonald's has a long history of promoting women entrepreneurs. It seems other McDonald's franchises across the country followed suit and gave a shout-out to women. Well, I think John's second letter gives to us a similar shout-out. Think about the strategic role that women have played in the ministry of Jesus. God's Son came into the world through the virgin womb of a woman. Among Jesus' disciples, Mary Magdalene and Mary Bethany were among his most devoted. At the cross, when the men had tucked tail and ran, it was the women and John who followed Jesus to the cross. 
The first person to see the risen Lord Jesus was a woman, Mary Magdalene. And it's no surprise that there were women among the 120 in the upper room when the Holy Spirit was poured out on Pentecost Sunday. It's true that the New Testament teaches a symbolic significance in the roles played by men and women in the church and in the home. These roles are important. Gender matters to God. Men are to lead and women are to let them. This portrays Christ's relationship with his church. But just because the office of a pastor or an elder is reserved for a man, it doesn't mean that female leadership isn't appreciated. The New Testament teaches the very opposite. In addition to the women mentioned in the Gospels, there was also that businesswoman, Lydia, a seller of purple dye, the scripture says, who founded the church in Philippi. In Acts, Philip's daughter served as prophetesses. And you remember Priscilla, Paul's friend, helped to tutor Apollos. Paul trusted his letter to the Romans, some of the most important theology in our Bibles, to a woman named Phoebe. It traveled to Rome under her robe. In 1 Timothy 5, an order of widows was established to serve the Lord in his church in meaningful ways. In fact, I don't think a New Testament fellowship is complete without women serving in the vital office of deaconess. I appreciate McDonald's for turning their golden arches upside down to honor women, but realize the Bible has always honored women's roles in the church, and Bible-believing churches today do the same. And this is what the elder John did by writing to the elect lady, to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. And here's the theme of John's letter, love in truth. See, first John told us that if we love God, we'll love our brother. But here we're told that real love never ignores the truth. God's love is always in harmony with God's truth. If ever our love causes us to ignore the truth, or if in the name of love we tolerate or gloss over or accept a falsehood, realize we're not exhibiting the same true love of God. Real love affirms and supports God's truth. And this is so important for us to understand in today's politically correct, can't offend, tolerant of everything, watered down world. Many churches today have adopted a love is supreme, unity at all costs type of mentality. To them, nothing is as important as love and peace and unity. Well, they have forgotten the words of our Lord Jesus. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus said, Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. For from now on, five in one house will be divided, two against three, and two against three against two, and two against three. Father will be divided against son, and son against father. Mother against daughter and daughter against mother. Mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Jesus said he would draw a line in the sand. He confronts us with the truth about God and about life and about us. And we're forced to make decisions that put us at odds with people who make the opposite choices. At times, friction even erupts in the same family. 
Not everyone humbles themselves and receives the truth. It's been said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you mad. Sometimes the truth does just that. It upsets people. To insist on unity at all costs glosses over the reality of objective truth. God's truth. Once a pastor, he called all the kids to the front of the church for a children's sermon. He was going to teach them about unity. He said, boys and girls, God wants us all to be one. A little four-year-old shouted, yeah, but I want to be five. (laughs) To suggest that Christians and Muslims and Hindus and atheists and Mormons should just forget their doctrinal differences and the incompatibility of their beliefs and just treat one another as brothers is ridiculous. As Christians, we should love everybody and we should seek to lead them to Christ. But for us to embrace them as family is to deny the truth that saves us and that defines us. Real love will never deny God's truth. And to suggest that it really doesn't matter what you believe, that doctrine is irrelevant, that all that matters is love, is total naivety about what the Bible truly teaches. I believe that the idea that all truth is relative which really serves as the backdrop of today's culture, is straight from the pit of hell. Your doctrine will determine your destiny. Don't say it's not important. Having love, even faith, is not enough. The real question is, can the object of your faith save you? Just because a baby sucks a bottle is no guarantee he or she will grow up healthy. It depends on the contents of that bottle. Likewise, faith alone will never save us. Faith and love have to be grounded in truth. In fact, I'd like to take this one step further. You know, the goal today in most mega church models is to focus on the basics of Christianity. Keep faith in Jesus and love for one another at the center of all that's said and done. Ignore the parts of the Bible that tend to divide us into subgroups. This is how churches grow so large, by sticking to a brand of Christianity everybody can agree on. It's a unity of common denominators, but that's not a unity of the truth. In fact, at times, to keep the people together, the truth even gets sidestepped. This is not our objective here at Calvary Chapel, just that you know. We believe the Bible is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And God wants us to teach his truth. The last thing God wants us to do is to duck the parts of the Bible that might be offensive to you. Thus, we talk about what the Bible talks about. Even controversial subjects like end times prophecy or gender roles or the gifts of the Spirit, or speaking in tongues, or sexual purity, etc., etc., etc. The Bible conveys the truths about all of life's issues, and God wants us to know it in its totality, whether it's comfortable for us or not. Paul told the Ephesian elders that he had been responsible for feeding them the whole counsel of God, not just what was easily digestible, or not just the red meat over which everyone agrees and everyone can rally. No, one day you and I will be responsible for what's in this book. 
The whole Bible is God's truth. And though we may not grasp every nuance perfectly, and we certainly can leave room for disagreement over non-essentials, we can get at the heart of what God is saying, and we can conform our lives to it. It is true what the Bible teaches about the peripheral issues isn't going to send a person to heaven or to hell. But that doesn't mean that these issues aren't important and won't affect a believer's spiritual health. If God put it in the Bible, it's meant to be considered by us. Walking in truth is always the Christian's goal. This is why here in verse 4, John rejoiced greatly when he learned that the lady's children were walking in truth. In 3 John, he makes a similar statement. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. And here John is writing to those whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all those who have known the truth. Notice the unity that is found in the truth. John writes to those who love the truth on behalf of all truth lovers. Trust me, lies and falsehood don't bring people permanently together, as does God's truth. Remember back in Ephesians 6, Paul talks about the armor of God. It's our spiritual defense against the wiles of the devil. And Paul mentions there the shield of faith. It's interesting, though, what that shield implies. The Roman legion carried a type of shield that interlocked. Have you ever heard of the testudo formation? Testudo is Latin for tortoise. This was literally the tortoise formation. Each man's shield connected to the shield next to him. And together they formed an impenetrable shell over the troops, a tortoise shell. And this is what the truth does for the church. When we unify behind the truth, under the truth, when we're sheltered under its shell, when the fiery arrows of the devil come, they bounce off of us. When they're raining down on our heads, we find refuge and security in the truth. God's truth becomes our protection. John says, because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. Notice real truth is eternal. It abides forever. See, God's truth doesn't shift from age to age or from generation to generation. It's unaffected by popular opinion. God's truth is never, quote, trending as if it's becoming more true. No, it's, it's absolute and it's timeless and it's for every age. When you read your Bible, you're reading one size fits all. Charles Spurgeon once said, many say that we ought to keep abreast of the times, whatever that may mean, and that there is a certain spirit of the age to which we should be subject. This to me is treason against sovereign truth. I know of only one spirit to whom I desire to be subject, and that is the spirit of all the ages who never changes. Let the times and the spirits go where they like. We shall keep to the Holy Spirit and to his eternal teachings. Cling to God's word. Cling to infallible and immutable revelation. Whatever novelty comes up, keep to the word of Jesus. Whatever discovery may be made by the wise men of the age, let Christ be wisdom to you. Here is your anchorage. The book is our ultimatum. Indeed, it's God's truth that abides forever. 
And then in verse 3, John extends his greetings to the elect lady and her children. He says, grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. It's truth and love that make a beautiful couple, isn't it? And it's grace, mercy, and peace that are their wedding gifts. Well, verse 4, John says, I rejoiced greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth as we receive commandment from the Father. Apparently, John had been in contact with some of the Christians who had been discipled by this elect lady. And he rejoices that they're doing well. This is a credit to her and to her ministry. And this is often the case. A person who walks in truth is more than likely the one who was weaned on truth. This affirms the importance of a good foundation. Do you have a good spiritual foundation? Do you know your Bible? Do you have discernment in spiritual matters? You see, a person on a good trajectory probably was headed straight from the start. They were grounded in truth. We all need to lay a solid spiritual foundation. He says, and now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is John's anthem in all of his writings. If we know God, we'll be filled with his love. And if we know God's love, then we'll love one another. And this is love that we walk according to his commandments. And notice how we love is measured by what we do. Love is an action word. Love is a lifestyle choice. If I really love my wife, I'll not just do what's convenient for me or what's easy for me to do, but I'll love her in the way that she needs and wants to be loved. I'll aim to please. And this should be our attitude toward God. Anybody can say they love God. But real love for God is willing to walk according to what pleases him. As John puts it, we walk according to his commandments. Verse 6, and this is the commandment that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. Now remember, John is now 100 years old. He's seen a lot in his lifetime. He's no longer the youngest of the disciples. He's now the elder. Can you imagine the wonders I mean, the miracles that the eyes of this man have seen. John saw the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. He saw the birth of the early church. He saw the martyrdom of his peers. He saw the transformation of what was a Jewish sect turn into a global movement. Now he's seen the expansion of Christianity take over all around the Mediterranean rim. And he's asserting that nothing has changed. That despite all that's happened, nothing has changed. From the outset of his ministry, Jesus taught the importance of love for one another. John had reiterated love, and this was the message from the beginning. And John encouraged his readers now to hold on to that message. Theologian Richard Niebuhr, he once said, The great Christian revolutions have come not by the discovery of something that was not known before, They happen when somebody takes radically something that was always there. See, we tend to look for new tactics, 
But it's the rediscovery of the simple truths, the beginning truths that light the fires of revival. Even today, it's not a new commandment that we need. We need to love like Jesus loves. We need to put our love into action. Love is what will change the world. And then he says in verse 7, For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. You know, it was Mark Twain who said, A lie runs around the world while truth is putting on her shoes. Bad news travels faster than good. We all know that. And sadly, this is true in the church. You know, Paul warned the Ephesian believers about being tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness by which they lie in wait to deceive. False doctrine blows through the church like a reoccurring wind. The same lie resurfaces again and again in new packaging. Whether like in John's day when people deny Jesus' humanity or like today when they deny his deity, we have to be on guard against deceivers. They are clever and they are deliberate. Hey, if you have any spiritual discernment at all, you're aware that there is a real antichrist spirit in our world today. It's pervasive, is it not? The animosity is palpable. And believers in Jesus need to beware. Author Warren Wiersbe once quoted a pastor of a successful church who made the comment, if I took my eyes off this work for 24 hours and stopped praying, it would be invaded before we knew it. He knew the importance of vigilance in the church's cultivation of sound doctrine. We too need to be vigilant. Reminds me of the little boy who was asked by his Sunday school teacher if he knew how to define the term false doctrine. Well, he thought the teacher had said false doctrine. He replied, false doctrine is when a doctor gives the wrong stuff to sick people. And this is also the definition of the term false doctrine. It's the wrong stuff to the spiritually sick. And here again, John tells us how to spot the person who is false doctrine. They may be right on 95% of what they say and teach, but invariably they will stray when it comes to what they believe about Jesus. John notes the deceivers of his day as those who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. Recall John battled a heresy that we now call Gnosticism. It was a system of belief that denied Jesus' humanness. In contrast, most false teachers today deny his deity. Both are wrong. Jesus revealed himself as both fully man and fully God. He is the God-man. He became a man so that he could bear our guilt. But he was always God so he could clear that guilt and expunge our sin. John writes here in verse 8, Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. This is sobering to me. Notice that in Christian ministry, we can lose what we work to obtain. Spiritual success is never guaranteed. 
Look around, and you'll see tiny crowds occupying huge church buildings today that were built in a day when those buildings were needed to accommodate the swell of hungry believers. Something has been lost. John was laboring in a day, in his day, to lay a solid foundation of right teaching in the church. But that foundation can crumble unless every believer takes responsibility for what he or she can do to preserve, to ensure the preservation of what was built. I look at what God has done here at our church at Calvary Chapel. He's done a great work over the years. But if we don't continue to serve and continue to support and to continue to give, the breakthroughs and the progress that God has given us will fade away. Entropy will set in. We're not immune to this either. If we just kick back and say, oh, I've done my part. I did my time in the nursery when my kids were younger. Or, oh, I gave my money to that last project. Or I've done the usher thing before. It's someone else's turn now. If we take that kind of approach, if we just pass the buck, we'll lose what we've worked so hard to build. It's been said, no snowflake in an avalanche ever feels responsible. I'm not asking anyone to do it all. I'm just asking us all to take personal responsibility for the part that God has called us to play in our church. And then he says in verse 9, Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. This is why it's so crucial for you to be right in your belief about Jesus Jesus is the means by which God has chosen to redeem the world to himself. If you're not right about Jesus, you can't be right about God. Jesus is the one bridge between God and man. Speaking of bridges, I read recently about a bridge in China. The Dayang Kunshu Grand Bridge. It is now officially the world's longest bridge It's part of the Beijing to Shanghai Freeway. Its length is a tad more than 102 miles long. Can you imagine? This enormous bridge took four years to build at a cost of $8.5 billion. It's now the longest bridge ever built, except for the bridge that Jesus built. For in just six hours... And at a cost far more than eight and a half billion dollars. With his own body and with his own blood, Jesus built a bridge from heaven to earth, from God to man. His cross spans an enormous gulf caused by our sin. And today, even when you violated God's law, even after you've broken his heart, you can still know him through Jesus Christ. The great bridge. And then verse 10 works all this out practically. John writes, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him. Hey, you need to start dealing. You deal with the deceiver at the door. Don't let him get on the inside of your own mind or your family or your church. In the first century church, traveling pastors were numerous. Many of the infant churches lacked adequate leadership, so there were men who traveled from place to place in order to fill in the gaps. 
Churches would put these fellows up, provide for their needs, support their ministries. But apparently this was such a frequent occurrence that the churches needed help in discerning who was a legitimate apostle and who was just a con man, a con artist, who was just taking advantage of the church's generosity. So in the second century, a document began to circulate in the churches known as the Didache, or the Teaching of the Twelve. And the Didache provided instructions for the churches concerning these traveling apostles. Here's a few examples of what you find in the Didache. Every apostle who comes to you should be received as the Lord, but he should not remain more than one day. And if there is some necessity, a second as well. But if he should remain for three, he is a false prophet. This is good wisdom. It's saying if a guy stays more than the weekend without offering to mow the grass or do some repairs or do something to pay his way, he's not an apostle. He's a freeloader. He's a deadbeat. You shouldn't allow him to stay. Here's another excerpt from the Didache. And when the apostle departs, he should receive nothing but bread until he finds his next lodging. But if he requests money, he is a false prophet. Wow, that would eliminate a few folks today, would it not? Here's another one. And not everyone who speaks forth in the spirit, in other words, who says, thus saith the Lord, is a prophet. But only if he has the kind of behavior which the Lord approves. For his behavior then will the false prophet and the true prophet be known. In other words, the proof is in his conduct, not in his words, not in his verbiage. Don't be deceived. And then it says, and every prophet who in the spirit, in other words, who speaks as if it's by the Holy Spirit, orders a table to be spread, shall not eat therefrom, but if he does, he is a false prophet. In other words, if supposedly the Holy Spirit speaks through one of these traveling pastors and he orders some food, make sure it's for the hungry and the needy folks in the fellowship, not for the fat cat prophet. I like this Didache. It has even more relevant warnings. And whoever says in the spirit, give me money, do not listen to him. But if he says that it should be given for others who are in need, let no one judge him. In other words, a greedy or lazy or irresponsible pastor shouldn't receive the church's support. John says, don't give in to an apostle's appeals for money. No matter how spiritual he sounds, we need discernment. Reminds me of the old adage, treat your guest as a guest for two days. On the third day, give him a hoe. That's a lot like the instructions we get in this ancient manual. This book, the Didache, was written in the second century to correct the church's lack of discernment in the first century. Apparently, the first century church abounded in love but lacked discernment. Churches had a habit of taking in everyone, true teacher or false teacher. The church was so enamored with the need to love, they failed to support the truth. And John is teaching us here that a love that is not wedded to the truth is not real love. In fact, it seems this problem in the early church was so prevalent that Christian charity was helping the false teachers to perpetuate the spread of their heresies. 
This is why John warns us in verse 11. He who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Offer a false teacher a helping hand or some practical support toward the deceitful work he's doing, and you're actually becoming an accomplice to his crime. You're aiding and abetting a deceiver. This was and is a a serious issue. In other words, if two Mormon missionaries pull up to your house on their bicycles, they're all hot and sweaty. And so in the spirit of niceness, you invite them into your air conditioning to take a nap and drink some lemonade. That's wrong. Don't enable a false prophet to keep spreading his deception. Don't let him come into your house and recuperate and all so he can go back out. No, instead, put him to work. Ask him to mow your lawn or something. Wear him out. Get him sidetracked for the day. Poop him out. Don't encourage him. If you see him with a flat tire, you probably need to help him get off the road maybe, but don't fix his flat for him. He'll just jump right back on his bike and keep peddling his heresy. There may be times when it is appropriate to invite a Mormon missionary or a Jehovah's Witness into your house. And in such cases, proper hospitality can be shown. But we need to be led by the Holy Spirit in these cases. John is telling us the the time to deal with the deceiver is at the door. We need to make sure that if we do invite him in, that the ultimate goal is to plant seeds of truth in his mind, not just a hot meal in his belly. I'm not saying we shouldn't befriend the cultists. Jesus taught us to be a friend of sinners, to lead them to him. But when a man is actively propagating lies, don't assist him. Don't even greet him in an encouraging way that would encourage him and promote him. As one commentary writes, John warns us not to intentionally or unintentionally collaborate with the enemy. Don't be mean, but when he comes to your door, don't moisten lips that lie with your lemonade. John concludes his second letter. Having many things to write to you, I did not wish to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face that our joy may be full. Here's why the elder's letter is so short and to the point. He's planning to visit this church where he'll fill in the details for them that he's left out in his letter. He's going to talk to them face to face. And isn't it interesting? Face to face is usually better than an email or a text or even a letter. Have you ever sent an email that was misunderstood? (laughs) Everyone has. For voice inflection and tone and body language all get left out of an email. You can see what a person is saying only if you're face to face. And this is why even though the live stream is a good option, you people out there in live stream land, even though live stream is a great option when you can't come to church, It should never be viewed as a replacement for the assembling of ourselves together. For there is a dynamic that occurs when we are face to face that we lack otherwise. Well, John closes. The children of your elect sister greet you. Amen. The elect sister may have been another church. 
Her children were members of a sister church. Or this was the lady's actual sister, and John sends greetings from her cousins. Well, Friday night at the dinner that Stacy held for our children's ministry volunteers, I was talking to a couple who mentioned that they had five grandchildren. But that's when the wife added, she said, well, one of our five is actually a cousin, but we just consider her to be one of our own. I thought that was beautiful. It was wonderful. And I'm sure that's also what these sisters thought. They treated their cousins as if they were their own. And in Christ they are. Let's also love each other as brothers and sisters. For we are. But in our loving, let's never, ever forget the truth.